everyone, welcome back to Chronicles of Curiosity. My name is Mason, and as always, I'm joined by my co-host. I'm Katie. Uh, this week, we're taking a trip to the shore, as people from Philadelphia would say. To the shore? The shore. Um, we're Which headed, one? Uh, the Jersey Shore. <gasps> but I like not, that one. But we're not talking about the show. We're actually headed to the Pine Barrens of New Jersey. Okay. But more on that in just a few minutes here. Okay. Um, before we get into our main topic, is there anything you've been curious about this week? Yeah, I was actually just thinking about... Um, crystals there's this one that i saw at a um it was our local uh pride fest a couple weeks ago i went with a friend and we checked out this one little tent that had crystals and stuff and i'm a hoe for crystals um big time and so is she actually and there was this one that they had that was called bumblebee jasper oh i've never heard of that i hadn't either i was looking at it and i was like i have no idea what the fuck this is so i asked one of the workers and that's what bumblebee jasper so i really i do encourage you to look it up i kind of want to get one just to look at because it's so interesting it's like a um yellowish different shades of yellow with like a gray and it's all spotty and it's very cool so it looks kind of like a bumblebee then right uh, no not really. Oh, right. no. But it's yellow and gray, so I don't know. I guess it makes sense. Do you have a favorite crystal? Um, I like selenite. Mm-hmm. Um, I really like good one. Uh, jade, I think is really pretty. Jade's lovely. Yeah, very, very beautiful. Um, yeah. I love turquoise, but it's just because I love the color. It has nothing else to do with, you know, the, origin or the geology. Benefits. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Those are probably my favorite favorite just a classic like crystal too yeah just like a like a, quartz quartz like yeah just a clear, crystal clear, quartz clear quartz yeah i love the the huge towers i feel like i've been yeah. seeing those more lately at like festivals and things mm-hmm. they're so cool yeah i like the spheres but i don't trust myself with them i just know that would not survive if i had a sphere i would probably just put it like i'd probably get a nice little pedestal for mm-hmm. it and just leave it on it and yes. look at it let yeah the, definitely let the sun reflect and drive our dog crazy yeah she doesn't like which is unfortunate because we really want those like sun catchers the mm-hmm. really cool crystal ones that you hang in the windows and it just looks all pretty and rainbow all over your room there's this shop that we really like in um in pa plymouth i think pa uh, it's called Phoenix Lane. Look into it if you are local or not local. They're so sweet there. We love them. Yeah, it's great. Um, they have these really cute sun catchers. And every time we go, I really want to get one. But I know Hazel is, she's just going to flip out. I feel bad because she tries to chase the sunlight reflecting mm-hmm. on the wall, on the ceiling, on the floor. To her, it's basically a giant laser light. Yeah. She which should. is partially our fault. But. Yeah. Yeah. So we don't do those. Yeah. But uh, anyway, uh, you been curious about anything this week? Yeah, I have. And I think you're going to find this kind of fascinating because I did too. Okay. All right. Earlier, I was reading an article. I think it was by uh, like Time Magazine or something like that. Um, talking about how Mexican cuisine has overtaken the previous most popular cuisine in the United States as a favorite food preference for people of our age uh-huh that's so, right yeah oh yeah of we course. follow that one I was i'd say, say mexican is probably my favorite oh me too yeah probably yeah i would say almost definitely yep um yeah so it tracks we're we love mexican food too and and we're of that generation so i was thinking about it okay and i was curious about why different generations kind of identify with different cuisines like different okay. categories of food so i did a little bit more research and i found actual studies that were done on this that um, categorize different cuisines with different generations, like Ooh. Kind of definitively. Oh, this is interesting. Like, yeah, how they represent them. So I'm going to go way back and I'm going to talk about the greatest generation, which is uh, people who were adults or becoming adults during World War II. Mm. 
and that's why they're known as the greatest generation. Oh, it's called that. That's the name of the generation. I thought you were saying it's the greatest generation. I was like, the (laughs) hell is this? No, no, no. So that's like people who are like at this point, they'd probably be in their 90s or uh, early hundreds. So there's not, yeah, there's not many of them around anymore. Yeah. um, Unfortunately, but their associated food cuisine style would be home style food mm-hmm. so any basically anything that could be sourced or made at home and it makes sense when you think about this sure you know does. going through the great depression that sort of thing so big food staples for them and i'm just going off the cuff right now but it's like a ham mashed potatoes uh, and gravy mashed potatoes and gravy chicken roasts um you know just very basic beef like pot roast that sort yeah, of thing yeah. just really home style meals mm-hmm. that you like would... my grandparents would like. yeah 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 exactly and they were probably i mean they were raised by definitely by people of that generation 100 yeah because they're the generation in, like, before them they're like 86 87 88 somewhere in that range so right right and you know of course none of these are like definitive in that these people of course obviously of course not these people don't only enjoy this type of food right it's just their like go-to or their favorite yeah when polled more people of that generation say this blank is their favorite so okay that's how they, that's how they figured this out um, the silent generation, which is the generation after the greatest generation, I don't know the exact dates, but it would be like anybody in their, uh, late sixties into their seventies. Okay. Um, their signature cuisine is called, cl- is classified as steakhouse fare. Interesting. So it's more commonly associated as traditional American food. So think, um, burgers, steaks, um, French fries, Things that, like, if you go to an American diner that you'd be able to order. Sandwiches, okay. Okay. that sort of thing. So it's this one, yeah, it's, this one's not super it's interesting. It's not very thrilling, but that's okay. <laughs> um, baby boomers. Uh, yeah. Can you guess what theirs is? Um, Think about it, like, from your own experience having baby boomer parents. I mean, the hard part is my, my dad is closer to baby boomer and my mom is closer to Gen X. Mm-hmm. But I think they're both technically Gen X. Um, I don't know. Theirs is Italian cuisine. Oh, that tracks. Yep. That sure tracks. Yeah. If, if someone from that generation is going to plan a night out and, and they're going to be spending a little bit more on a meal, um, the majority of the time it's going to be Olive Italian. Garden. Well, I don't know about Olive Garden specifically. <laughs> Up here in, in the New York, height we, have, of luxury. we have a lot of great Italian restaurants. We do, like local really ones. Lucky, We've but, got some really good options. But yeah, Olive Garden is on that list yep. for sure. So I don't need to explain Italian food to anybody. No. Um, Gen X, uh, this one really surprised me because I was thinking about this and I, I was trying to think of what would be associated before I actually read the rest of that portion of the article and or that study. And Gen X, I couldn't think of anything, but this makes sense. Uh, fast food. Just as a general... Just as a general whole, okay. but also more as a concept. Fast food was really taking off in like the 70s and 80s. But not only that, it's not really that fast food was taking off as a business model. It's more that people from that generation tend to associate the most growing up with fast food. Oh. So like when you're talking about like Happy Meal McDonald's nostalgia right. or, you know, what whatever you grew up with, more often than not, it's the Gen X generation who is associated with that. Okay. So like you're talking about huh. classic fast food. Oh, food was better. It was cheaper. It was better quality. Service and it was, was better. easily attainable. Yep. Like pace wise it wasn't you didn't have to sit down and wait for your food to get ordered you just ordered at the window pull up and it's ready exactly and it was also like i said kind of a newer concept at the time yeah there are places that had like fast service but yeah so gen x fast food a millennial can you guess chinese takeout uh 
Okay, yeah. So you have half of it. Millennials okay. actually split half and half. Chinese food um, is spot on. Mm-hmm. The other half, which I didn't connect the dots, but this makes total sense, fusion food. Oh. Yeah. If you see like a Japanese American fusion restaurant, if you see an, uh, I don't know, European uh, Spanish fusion mm-hmm. okay. or, or Latino fusion restaurant, it's always... It's usually going to be millennials who are either owning it, running it, or patronizing it, you know, going there and getting the food from there. Okay. I, I did not. I would not have guessed that. I like certain fusion restaurants, but mm-hmm. I find that for most fusion, I would rather just go one or the Authentic. other. Yeah. 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 I don't I don't really like fusion. And yeah, fusion, I feel like, is, is where you see the most, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Not pretentiousness, but where you're paying $20 for some bang bang shrimp that you could have gotten much much better if you just went to a japanese restaurant and you could have gotten it for eight dollars you know what i mean Mm -hmm. like they throw some scallions on it and they put it on a fancy plate and they drizzle some quote-unquote secret sauce over the top and then that's how they justify it and you know what the food is usually good but i personally prefer authentic now what what category does cheesecake factory fall under is it fusion no i don't i think cheesecake is its own thing cheesecake factory i mean is its own thing because they it's have like American, but they have every other genre of food, but yeah. none of it is amazing. It's all frozen. Yeah, it's all like baseline good. It's like baseline yeah. okay, but you would not go there because you're like, oh man, their They're, Asian food is yeah. the best, or their pizza. And I'm sure we're offending people because I'm sure that's somebody's favorite. We're offending my sisters. I like. Uh, I don't know about how they feel about the food, but there's this one smoothie at Cheesecake Factory that they just would die for. It's a good-ass smoothie. I'll give them that. It is a good smoothie. Um, the one thing that I've heard about Cheesecake Factory more than any other item is their... Um, cheesecake? Che- no. Well, yeah, of course. <laughs> no, they're... Um, they're fuck, what is it? Oh, they're che- a cheeseburger egg rolls or Southwest egg rolls, yeah. I've heard. Cheeseburger egg yeah, rolls? Yeah, and there's one other one, too, and I can't mm. think of the third one. I think it might just be like a chicken. Is- like. It's uh, it's chilies that has those Southwest egg rolls that we like. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're those really good. Slap. Anyway, yeah. please continue. I'm really yep. interested in this. So uh, that, that's millennial fusion, a tie between fusion and Asian cuisine. Okay. Um, Gen Z is Mexican. Hell yeah. Gen Z or Latino food in general. Gen Z has overtaken millennials for the most popular food choice. And there are so many of us running around, so many of us in our age range, that it actually tipped the scales in the United States to be the most popular mm. cuisine. Not only the most popular within our own generation, mm-hmm. but the most popular in Damn. general. Gen Z is influential. But I know a whole lot of millennials and baby boomers and Gen X that love Mexican just as much as we do. Yeah, so we're not putting people in a box, but oh, this not. is what the report says. Yeah, this is just based on your generation, what you are most likely to associate with as being your favorite cuisine or, or your favorite type of food or that sort of thing. So I thought that was really interesting. And it's never something that I've put into like, it's never something I've written down and looked at and, and yeah, no. taken it in. It's always just something that I've kind of, you know, known instinctually. Mm-hmm. But yeah, that's interesting, that interesting to me. I've been very curious about. And every time somebody mentions like a restaurant that we have to try or something, I kind of filter it through this lens now. Yes, I think I will as well. It's like once you hear it, it's you can't not think about it whenever somebody talks yeah. about food with you. Sorry we're bestowing this upon you, but if I had to deal with it, so do you. Yeah. Um, but before we get started in, into the main episode portion of the episode here, we'd like to ask that you consider giving us a follow on whatever platforms you use to listen to podcasts. And while you're there, if you're already there, giving us a follow, leave us a review as well. 
or send us a message. We can do like DMs on Instagram. I think we have them open on TikTok as well. We tend to um, monitor Instagram the most. So if you want to reach out to us, I would go that route or our email. Um, Our Instagram is Chronicles of Curiosity Podcast and our TikTok is Chronicles of Curiosity Pod. Um, And our email is Chronicles of Curiosity Podcast at gmail.com. Yep. So uh, let's get into it here this week. Let's go back to the Jersey Shore. Jersey Shore. So uh, I don't actually know if I mentioned uh, what we're covering on the Jersey Shore or in New Jersey, but it is the a cryptid known as the Jersey Devil. Have Ooh. you heard of this before? Yes. You have? Okay. I, have. I figured being from New York and, and, and traveling to New Jersey, but we'll get into that more later on. Okay. Uh, so the legend of the Jersey Devil has its roots in the folklore of the New Jersey Pine Barrens. And the Pine Barrens are a spooky area of the state surrounded by very, very, very dense pine forests. Okay. I, I, yeah. It, there's nothing, the tracks. Yeah, there's nothing cryptid about that. Mm-hmm. Um, so according to local folklore, the indigenous Lenape people believed that the Pine Barrens were inhabited by a spirit known as Msing, uh, which sometimes took the form of, quote, a deer-like creature with leathery wings. Oh, the popular and modern legend of the Jersey Devil begins in the 1700s with a woman named Jane Leeds, uh, commonly referred to as, quote, Mother Leeds. Uh, she was a resident of the Pine Barrens. And as the story goes, Mother Leeds already had 12 children. Oh. And upon discovering that she was pregnant with her 13th, oh. became frustrated. Well, yeah. And exclaimed that the child would be the, quote, devil. Mm. Not that he would be of the devil or he would be the devil. The devil. Yeah. Okay. So Um. in 1735, on a stormy night surrounded by her friends, Mother Leeds went into labor. Okay. The child was initially born as a normal baby boy, but suddenly transformed into a horrifying creature with a goat's head, bat wings, hooves, and a forked tail. Hey, that's nasty. A forked tail. Forked tail. Oh. It emitted terrifying growls and screams, and it lashed out at those around it uh, with its tail before flying up the chimney and vanishing into the dark forest. Do we know how soon after birth this happened? Um, I quickly, right? Is what pretty it quickly, like? within a couple minutes. My lord. Yeah, within the day. The devil, indeed. Some versions of the legend portray Mother Leeds as a witch, and others suggest that the child's father was the devil himself. Okay. Uh, There have even been tales of local clergymen attempting to exercise the creature from the Pine Barrens. And when you say exercise, you don't mean take them for a jog. You mean uh, remove the devil from their souls? Exactly. Okay. Yeah. Prior to the early 1900s, the creature was known as the Leeds Devil or the Devil of Leeds. Okay. That just referred to the Leeds family being associated with the town of Leeds Point in southern New Jersey. Historian Brian Regal, who I um, used the majority of my sources for this week were his works, um, proposed an alternative theory that the story of Mother Leeds and the Leeds Devil uh, was not, you know, of course, fact, but originated from religious and political disputes in the colonial southern New Jersey area. Daniel Leeds, who was a Quaker and a prominent figure in pre-revolutionary New Jersey, uh, was ostracized by the Quaker community uh, due to his astrological almanacs and later conversion to Anglicism, I think is how you say that. I see it. He became Anglin. What the hell is that? It is a religion uh, 
Anglo-Saxon? Anglican? Okay, yeah, I'm sorry. Anglicanism. Maybe. I don't know. I'm sorry, I got all the syllables in there, but I don't know what the fuck it is. This seems like a portion of Christianity that probably mostly faded um, by, like, the 1800s. Oh. Kind of like Quakers. Like, you don't run into many Quakers now. Mm -hmm. You might, might, maybe in central Pennsylvania, you might run into a couple, but... Perhaps. So, Anglic... You said it was Anglicanism? Yeah. Okay. So, he became of that religion he converted to that which is just another sect of christianity it's not anything that we would today consider to be like an occult practice okay and then the other reason why he was uh, kind of looked down upon and, and judged is because he would make almanacs and he was a farmer okay so it kind of makes sense that you would want to try and figure out when to plant your crops and yeah but that's neither here nor there okay uh so leads daniel leads and his family became associated with the occult and received negative portrayals around the community, which contributed to the spread of the legend of the Leeds Devil. Naturally, yes. So that's kind of a little bit about the beginning of this tale. Okay. Kind this of is the origin story. From. Yeah, this is the okay. origin story. It, there's a lot more to it if you really want to dig down into it, but essentially a woman has a child. A th- the, her 13th child. Her 13th. Yeah, so that's just a little bit of the backstory, kind of the origin of this, uh, where the story came from, what uh, kind of was happening at that time period when this story really kind of blew up, went viral in the 1700s sense. But since the emergence of the legend in the early 18th century, numerous sightings of the Jersey Devil have been reported by individuals across the Pine Barrens region and beyond. Oh, okay. So it has explored outside of the, the, what is it, Pine Bluffs? Pine Barrens. Pine Barrens. Yeah, and actually, um, something that I found interesting, most of the sightings are on the edge of the Pine Barrens now. Mm. They're not really within as much as they used to be. Okay. Um, So these uh, accounts, these these first-hand accounts, vary in detail and, of course, credibility, as with all cryptids, um, but they all contribute to the mystique around this creature. Okay. Uh, one of the earliest documented sightings occurred in 1812 when Joseph Bonaparte, uh, yeah, the elder brother of Napoleon Bonaparte oh. and former king of Naples and Spain, claimed to have encountered the Jersey Devil while hunting on his uh, Bordian Town, I believe that's the location, Bordian Town Estate in New mm-hmm. Jersey. Mm-hmm. Uh, Bonaparte described a bizarre creature with wings resembling those of a bat, a horse-like head, and glowing red eyes. Oh. This encounter by a obviously very prominent figure added legitimacy to the tales of the Jersey Devil and then really sparked public interest in the legend uh, once again. Uh, in the late 19th century, and I'm sorry, I got to go back to Bonaparte here for, for a moment. Um, it would be like if like Bill Clinton came out and said that he saw Bigfoot. He's Damn. like, no, nah, man, I saw him. I saw him in the woods. That was really good. Thank you. Yeah. Um, but no, really, it would be, if not even bigger, it would be like if, if, if the current president or, you know, the future, a future president were to say that they saw a cryptid mm-hmm. but, and genuinely believe it. Okay. So in the late 19th century and early 20th centuries, uh, sightings of the Jersey Devil became more frequent, especially in the areas, uh, like I had mentioned previously, surrounding the Pine Barrens and on the, on the cusp of the Pine Barrens. These accounts often describe a creature uh, measuring around two to three, four, or two, three, or four feet tall, um, depending on who That's sees it. Pretty small. Yeah, pretty little. Um, it has leathery wings spanning six to eight feet, so those are much bigger. Wow. Uh, witness, witnesses reported 
seeing the Jersey Devil flying low over the treetops or lurking in the darkness, emitting lurking. a lurking, emitting a spine chilling shriek that sends shivers down people's spines. Ooh. Yeah. In January of 1909, a series of sightings and encounters with the Jersey Devil caused a sensation throughout the region. Numerous reports flooded local newspapers detailing encounters with a creature that matched the descriptions from earlier tales. Panic gripped the communities as people claimed to have seen the Jersey Devil terrorizing livestock, attacking their dogs, and just kind of generally causing mayhem. Okay. Remember, this thing is only two to four feet tall. Yeah. Um, He's little. Little little guy, but still pretty creepy if you're out in the woods at night and, and you see um, that. Yeah. Or you're on your farm and you look out the window and something's sucking the blood out of your cow. Did it do chupacabra. that? I would imagine, yeah. Ooh. Yeah. Um, one notable incident t- uh, during the 1909 flap occurred in Haddon Heights, New Jersey, when a group of people, including a police officer, claimed to have encountered the Jersey Devil on a dark back road. Mm. Um, by the way, fla- a flap is just a period of time when there is an increased number of paranormal sightings. Oh, yeah. that's the first time I've heard that. Yeah, so for example, the reported UFO sightings uh, near Roswell, New Mexico in mm. the um, early 20th century would be considered a flap. Okay. People were talking about it. It was in people's minds, and suddenly there was a huge increase in number of sightings. Okay. Similar thing happened uh, with Bigfoot, I believe in the 70s, near like the Philadelphia region. Or the Pittsburgh region, excuse me. Okay. Um, and then these are, you know, there's cases of this all all over the world at all different time points. Okay. All Periods right. of time when a significant number of people see something paranormal or, or unexplained. Uh, these people who claim to have seen the Jersey Devil, the police officer, and, and, a, and a, the other group of people uh, claimed to have seen glowing eyes, a horse-like head, and wings that flapped ominously as it flew above them. What did the first guy say the head looked like? Uh, he said it looked like a horse. Oh, yeah, and this whole time I've been picturing not that. No, no, they, these are all, and that's the really strange thing is within cryptozoology and, and discussion of cryptids, there tends to be a pretty wide margin of, of how people will describe yep. creatures. Yep. Uh, these are like really surprisingly similar. Mm, like okay. all, almost all the accounts are have identical or, or near identical okay. descriptions. All right, well, that's interesting. And a lot of them, especially in 1909 and, and before, are kind of in a vacuum they have no necessarily they don't have necessarily have a reference point yeah to what they're describing so they have no cultural backdrop like we would with aliens or yeah Bigfoot. yeah man i gotta readjust my visual picture here because i've just been picturing that little, <laughs> little that little motherfucker from um the great mouse detective yeah gidget widget pidget uh i don't know he has a peg leg he's a horrendous little i don't think it's gidget no that's the name of the dog from secret life of pets mm. Anyway, if you know who I'm talking about, that son of a bitch gave me nightmares. (laughs) Creepy. Anyway. Uh, So fearing for their lives, they fled the scene, convinced that they had come face to face with the infamous cryptid, or if not the cryptid, then something creepy. Yes, there is no doubt about that. In the following months, more sightings poured in from various locations, including Mount Holly, Bristol, and the outskirts of Camden. Uh, Witnesses ranged from ordinary citizens to respected professionals, such as previously mentioned police officers, journalists, uh, and even a member of the Philadelphia Zoo staff. Oh. Yeah. I would trust them more than the police officer, just saying. (laughs) The sightings were so numerous and widespread uh, that schools actually closed. Factories shut down early for the day, 
and armed posses patrolled the streets in search of the elusive creature. It was that big of a deal. It was that big of a deal. What year did you say it was? 1909. And they closed schools. Closed schools and people were grabbing their shotguns and taking to the streets and they were going to take care of this the American way, I guess. Oh. Um, It was, and again, like you said, it was a big deal at the time. Uh, Over the years, sightings of the Jersey Devil continued sporadically. In 1927, a taxi driver claimed to have encountered the creature while driving near Salem City, New Jersey. He described it as a monstrous winged creature that briefly perched on his vehicle before flying away into the night. Damn. In 1951, a group of boys discovered strange footprints in the snow near, near May's Landing. Oh, we've been there. Yeah, we've been there. Believed to be the tracks of the Jersey Devil. Okay. Uh, and Katie and I have actually driven through the Pine Barrens many times on our way to and from the shore. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we uh, used to go with my family on vacation down to Sea Isle City, New Jersey, if anyone has heard of it. Mm-hmm. It's so cute. We love it. I miss it. We haven't been in a long time. Yeah, it's been a while, but it, it is pretty creepy out there. And the thing is, we've only, I think we've only driven through in the daytime. Whereabouts is it? Central New Jersey. It's kind of that section of so New Jersey Seattle. where... before Yeah, oh, well before. Well before. Yeah, okay. see, I mean, Seattle is, of course, on the coast. It's very end. Yeah, yeah. Almost. So this is central New Jersey, central portion of the state where you're kind of driving, you kind of go from the populated outskirts of Philadelphia to uh, nothing, and then back to more populated areas near the coast, like Ocean City and Atlantic City. Okay. Egg Harbor. Um, Wildwood. Wildwood, yeah, yeah. All those towns along the coast. It's kind of the area in the middle where there are significantly less people Mm -hmm. and a lot more wildlife. And most of that is because the pine forests make it so difficult to build. Yeah. Um, If it's not swampland, then it's just really heavily forested. Okay. Leave the trees alone. Yeah, so the the previous reports uh, I mentioned are only really a few of the reported sightings. Seriously, there's like hundreds Mm, uh, of okay. reports, and I could only include a few. Yeah. Um, but I did want to give a firsthand account of a night of a 1909 sighting reported by a local police officer. So this isn't the same police officer that reported the appearance of the Jersey Devil initially that led to the chaos. This okay. was a little bit later, um, but this was a firsthand account. His story was recorded and published by both the Philadelphia Inquirer and the New York Times. Uh, so this is a verbal account from the police officer that was later transcribed. Cue the creepy music. <laughs> it was a bone-chilling winter night in 1909 when I found myself on patrol in the town of Bristol, Pennsylvania. The moon was obscured by dark clouds casting an eerie shadow over the streets. Little did I know that this night would forever be stuck in my memory. As I strolled along the quiet road, I heard a faint rustling sound coming from the nearby woods. Instinctively, I grabbed for my flashlight and cautiously approached the source of the noise. And that's when I saw the damned thing, standing there just a few yards away from me. My heart skipped a beat when I laid eyes on a creature so grotesque it seemed like my kid's nightmares. Its eyes glowed with an otherworldly intensity and its body was unlike anything I have ever seen. The creature possessed wings, long and thin, resembling sort of a bat, and its head bore an uncanny resemblance to that of a horse. Fear shot through me, but I tried to keep my composure. I couldn't tear my eyes away from the damn thing, as it let out an ear-piercing scream that echoed through the air. The sound sent shivers down my spine, and I could feel the hair on the back of my neck stand up. Before I could react, the creature spread its wings and took off into the night sky, disappearing into the darkness with an agility I can't explain still. 
I stood there, stunned and bewildered, struggling to comprehend the bizarre encounter. Word of my sighting spread pretty quickly, and soon the townsfolk were abuzz with discussions of the Jersey Devil. My fellow officers and I shared our experiencing, and we found a little bit of solace in the fact that we were not alone in our encounters. The community was engulfed in fear, unsure of what this creature might have meant for our safety and well-being. To this day, the memory of that encounter still haunts me. I can still hear the creature's unearthly screams and see its glowing eyes in my dreams. Poetic. Whether it was a figment of my imagination or a real entity from hell, I may never truly know. But one thing remains certain. The Jersey Devil has left an undeniable mark on my life and of our community. Wow. Um, does anyone else feel like we should have a like creepy story time with Mason segment? Because mm-hmm. you tell us like a... A really good story, especially when you like add the music. Like I've heard very good reviews on our Yeti episode because I loved the little story you told where you put music in. Oh, I appreciate it. Yeah, add your input to that, friends. I like. Give the, me your uh, thoughts. I like the firsthand accounts too because it really gives yeah. some like context, you can put some in personal the shoes. Yeah, some personal character context. out of it. Yeah. So I had mentioned Brian Regal per- uh, previously. Uh, he is a professor at Keene University. Uh, along with other researchers and folklore historians, um, they've kind of come up with five explanations as to what the creature could be. Because at this point in my research, I am 100% convinced that there is something out in that woods, Um, whether it's the Jersey Devil as the people of New Jersey tend to believe it is. I don't know. I haven't experienced it myself, but something's going on. Yeah, it sounds like there's something fishy happening. There's got to be something. So they turn to the local researchers and folklore experts um, there are five explanations that they came up with. Okay, uh, number one is uh, misidentified animals. So this is pretty right, well. straightforward. So the most common that they think is a type of owl. That it'd have to be a big freaking owl. Yeah, that's what I was thinking too. Face of a horse. Yeah. Okay. So under so under certain conditions, and I'm reading verbatim here from from these studies. Mm-hmm. Um, under certain conditions, uh, certain owls, herons, or uh, other large birds could appear more menacing and distorted. Uh, this theory proposes that exaggerated accounts and fear may have distorted the perception of these ordinary creatures. Boring. Mm-hmm. Uh, number two is sandhill cranes. Um, and oh. Uh, yeah. And you've seen these, right? I think these, so, yeah. They're very creepy looking. Very, very creepy looking. Uh, number three is uh, just kind of a hoax and mass hysteria viewpoint of it. Okay. You hear one story of someone describing something, and naturally you're going to be seeing that everywhere you look. Yes. Everybody's going to be believing, be believing you know, that, that theory. Uh, and it just kind of snowballs from there. Uh, number four is just purely a result of folklore. Um, the Jersey Devil could have been seen as a manifestation of folklore and urban legends deeply rooted in the cultural history of the region. So these stories often serve as cautionary tales or as just a, a way to explain unusual events or phenomena. And the Jersey Devil may have kind of erupted from a combination of historical events, local legends, local superstitions, which eventually evolved over time into the larger-than-life creature that we now know as the Jersey Devil. All right. Yeah. So they're really talking about throughout the 1700s and 1800s. Mm-hmm. So by the time the early 20th century came about, 1909, it was already firmly rooted in the culture of New Jersey, okay. whether the people knew it, you know, explicitly or not. Okay. All right. And then the last possibility, number five, is that this actually is a paranormal or supernatural entity. Some individuals, 
um, entertain the possibility that the Jersey Devil could actually be something, if not paranormal or supernatural, unexplained. Something fucking weird. Yeah, yeah. So this perspective suggests that the creature might have origins beyond the just normal realm um, and also possesses abilities that defy current scientific explanation. So these theories kind of often intertwine with cryptozoology and study of the the hidden or, or you know that sort of thing, which is right where we fall. Mm-hmm. So I, I tend to lean toward this explanation. Yeah, but I like it, this one best. It, these are the five possibilities. Um, I think the last option is the most fun. Yes, the most interesting. Um, but because you know this is cryptozoology, we, uh, you know we probably won't have a definitive answer anytime soon. So it is completely up to you as to what you believe. Okay. I personally think that if you hold one strong opinion or another regarding cryptids, you're not harming anybody mm-hmm. in your belief of those. Uh, so believe what you want to believe in this aspect and have a, have fun with it. Yeah. Yeah. I agree with that. And that's, I mean, that's really all I had for you this week. That's the story of the Jersey Devil from a very brief uh, origin to some current sightings and then uh, also you know what the possibilities of what it could be i encourage you to kind of do a little bit more research on your own if you're curious about this mostly i would look at the accounts that people have written about and told um they're they're kind of what i find the most interesting because some people you can tell are are a little bit maybe over the top Mm -hmm. but other people are being as genuine as you can possibly be yeah which it's it's pretty easy to tell usually which is which yes also, before we go here, I wanted to uh, mention to all our listeners who are also sports fans, the NHL team, the Jersey Devils, are indeed directly named after the cryptid. There's no okay. other explanation right. as to where their name came from. I like it. Yeah. Um, and also, before we go, I wanted to quickly mention the sources I used in this week's episode. Um, we have American Myths, Legends, and Tall Tales, an Encyclopedia of American Folklore by Christopher Fee. I feel like I used that one before. Yep, it's a it's a good one. It's full of it's chock full of stuff. Okay. Um, we have The Jersey Devil by James McCloy and Ray Miller Jr. And lastly, The Jersey Devil and Pine Barren Folklore by the Pinelands Preservation Alliance. They're a group of individuals who are keeping this legend alive for future generations to see. I like it. Yeah. And that is going to do it for us this week, everyone. Um, We hope you enjoyed taking a look at another cryptid. We definitely have more on the horizon. Uh, This was a little bit more local to us personally, Mm -hmm. which I always enjoy. Yeah. Um, If you have a cryptid that is really only known in your area, absolutely tell us about it because those types of things fascinate me the most. Yeah. Like hyper-specific folktale and folklore. Yeah, I agree. Yep. Before we go, um, please consider leaving us a review on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, wherever you get your music or, or podcasts. Um, and we also invite you to follow us on Instagram and TikTok, as we previously mentioned. Uh, we tend to post some photos and additional episode information there. And mm-hmm. you can always yep. send us a message. Instagram especially. Yeah. And that's going to do it for us this week. Thank you for listening, everyone. And we will talk to you next week. Bye. Bye.